Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, Frenita, how are you? Good. How are you today, Ned? We're doing well. It's been a busy week, but productive, and everybody's still healthy and happy. How about in your world? Same, same. Just keeping busy and, and, and trying to figure out uh, what's going to happen in November. So our, our conversation today is, is quite timely. Um, so uh, we, we have a guest with us. We do indeed. We're really delighted. Uh, Rick Hassan, who is actually out closer to you than to me out in California. He's a law professor, as I suspect many of our listeners know, at the University of California at Irvine. And he is clearly a leading figure in the world of election law, uh, both with his many publications, books and articles, too many to list and enumerate here. He also runs the Election Law blog, which is essential reading for all of us, as, as many of our listeners know. But the reason why we're so thrilled to have him today is because of some recent work that he's doing. And I think, Fernita, you're the one who wants to highlight what he's been up to lately. And I should just disclose that I've been fortunate enough to be involved in the project that Rick is going to talk about. So uh, full disclosure there. Yeah, so, so Rick spearheaded a group of experts, and um, the, the, the group is called the Ad Hoc Committee for 2020 Election Fairness and Legitimacy. Um, and the, the group really wanted to come up with some targeted recommendations for election administrators heading into November. Um, and, and they came up with 14 recommendations. And um, our conversation today will try to flesh out the ways in which these recommendations can help facilitate free and fair elections in November. And so um, I want to invite uh, both of you, in fact, because Nate, you were involved in this effort as well, to um, go over some of the key recommendations and, 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 and talk about for our audience um, why the committee thought that these were important and how they can help us in November. Yes, but let's let Rick take the lead. He really spearheaded this effort and, you know, guided the process. He was the conductor of this symphony. So, so Rick, we look forward to, and we welcome you to the podcast. Well, thank you. And uh, it's great to be on the podcast. I think it's so important that uh, you two are having these regular conversations, and especially now, uh, as we're getting closer to the election, there are a lot of issues that deserve uh, hashing out and airing, uh, as we all know, before the election rather than after the election uh, to try to think about questions of fairness and legitimacy. Uh, your very podcast is called Free and Fair. So I think that that sends a signal uh, aside from just alliteration, uh, which you two seem to be good at. Um, so let me talk for a minute about the genesis of the report and uh, then get into the recommendations because I think that uh, it, it helps to situate things. Uh, so back in February, I uh, published a book with Yale University Press called Election Meltdown. And it talks about the different reasons why uh, trust in American elections has been declining. Recent polling shows that 40% or more of Americans uh, don't believe that uh, elections are being uh, or are likely to be conducted in a fair uh, and legitimate way. And in such a hyper-polarized society, we're, we're, we're very concerned about uh, this. And uh, as I wrote the book, I realized that while I had some good medium and long-term solutions to try to think about how we could improve our elections, I didn't have very good short-term solutions. 
And, and so I thought, well, the problems that we face are multifaceted. Uh, they're in law, they're in politics and norms, they're in media, and, uh, um, and they're in technology. And so really an approach that uh, would look to minimize the chances of an election meltdown in November and assure that we have an election that's not just legitimate, but one that uh, people would accept as legitimate, would require solutions in those four areas. And so uh, I convened uh, a, a conference uh, that took place at the end of February called Can American Democracy Survive the 2020 Elections? Uh, we had a number of uh, scholars in those four areas there, as well as election officials. We had the secretaries of state of Michigan and Ohio, for example. And then the second day, a subgroup of people, not the uh, secretaries of state, not the journalists, but the scholars and, and thinkers among the group came together uh, for a private meeting. Uh, and we tried to hash out uh, what can be done in each of those four areas, law, politics, and norms, media, and tech, to try to minimize the chance of a meltdown in November. And uh, uh, we, we met for a day, we made a lot of progress, and that was one of the last groups that met before, uh, in person, uh, before COVID-19 really uh, uh, changed how Americans are able to behave. Uh, so uh, uh, the, the profound changes in American society uh, that took place uh, in March of 2020 led the group, as we continued our deliberations online, to add additional uh, suggestions and to refine our suggestions to take into account the fact that we may well be voting in November in the midst of a pandemic. And so we came up with sets of recommendations in these four areas. We released our report at the end of April, and now uh, we're trying to get attention for our recommendations. Uh, and so I'll just briefly speak uh, uh, to, to some of them. There are 14 recommendations. I'm not going to walk through all 14, uh, but I'll say in the legal area, uh, one of the key um, uh, recommendations we make is about uh, voting in the time of the pandemic. And uh, we suggest that states make emergency plans. Uh, what happens if um, polling places have to be closed? Uh, we wrote this not just about the pandemics. What happens if there's a hurricane or a terrorist attack? Is there a plan B? And so we say every state needs to have a plan B and a plan C. Uh, we also say that states need to modify their election procedures uh, and give a variety of means of voting, from, including in-person and, and absentee voting, in order to assure that most Americans, uh, as possible, can vote uh, in November in a safe and successful way. And we suggest that states adopt election reforms related to absentee balloting and provisional balloting to assure both access and security in the process. Uh, and and uh, finally, and this relates to Ned, and Ned could talk about this um, Directly, uh, we recommend that scholars think about some of the naughty questions related to uh, post-election disputes, uh, especially over the presidential election, the electoral college, uh, that could result if we have a very close election. So those are the legal uh, um, uh, suggestions we made. In the area of media, uh, we proposed really two main points. Uh, one is that we thought that um, media organizations need to be educating the public that because of the expected flood of absentee ballots, which we expected anyway, even before the pandemic, but now for sure, there could well be a delay in the counting of votes and the uh, release of results. And we're worried that if there is a delay that one candidate could declare himself the winner of the presidential election, five days later, we get a different winner and that uh, the public would uh, have suspicion over the election and, and we wanted to ensure that the media understands they need to educate the public about too early to call. 
uh, and that this is an important message to send out. We also suggested that um, nonprofit organizations should educate journalists and should educate the public about what's going to happen with the election, how it's going to work, and so that uh, misinformation can be combated. Um, in the area of politics and norms, um, we suggested not only adequate funding for COVID-19 related expenses, we know that uh, the estimates say that the additional expenses of running the election in the face of the pandemic could be up to $2 billion. Uh, we recommended the formation of a, an election crisis commission made up of bipartisan leaders who could weigh in on an advisory basis as to how election disputes might be conducted. Um, and we talked in terms of norms about all um, elect, uh, uh, candidates and uh, party leaders and others embracing the idea that all eligible voters should be able to cast a ballot that will be fairly and accurately counted. And that uh, given misinformation about voting that we saw in the 2016 election, that really there needs to be on the social media companies more efforts to make sure that misinformation about voting, where to vote, when to vote, how to vote, misinformation that could be exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, that, that, that these uh, social media companies are able to provide counter information so that voters can get accurate information about voting. And finally, in the area of tech, we had a number of recommendations, the most important of which I think is that uh, there should be a paper trail. There should be a piece of paper that can be counted in the event of an election dispute. We can't depend on all electronic or internet-based voting where there is no piece of paper to count. That paper provides an ability to have a physical specimen that could be examined in the event that there's a very close election. We call for election audits. We call for a resilient election structure. What's gonna happen, for example, if states rely on electronic poll books to check voters in and the electronic poll books go down for whatever reasons, so there should be paper backups available there. And finally, uh, we suggest that states not only um, monitor um, uh, the um, uh, election technology itself that's used to cast votes, but also state voter registration databases, which were targeted in 2016 by Russian government agents. So that, in a nutshell, are the kinds of recommendations. It was a, it was a cross-ideological group. Uh, it was a cross-disciplinary group. Uh, and I think that the proposals we came up with were quite um, uh, positive uh, and are the kinds of things that would not be seen as, say, taking one side or another, but just ways to advance the fairness and legitimacy of the process. Very comprehensive. It, it really was. Um, well, I, I've got some questions, but Pranita, I suspect you do as well. So do you want to uh, take the lead? Yeah, sure. So it seems to me that the report really is a dream for people who care about free and fair elections, right? So the, the recommendations, they make a ton of sense, not just in this moment of COVID-19, but just more generally, right? We want to encourage good practices by election administrators. We want to encourage states to um, run their elections in a way that ensures that people who are entitled to vote can vote while also respecting the integrity of the process. And it seems like the recommendations are really in line with trying to promote that ideal. Um, but it is an ideal in a sense, right? One of the things that the report points out is the fact that the, the, the price tag is $2 billion. And we know that um, so far the federal government has only allocated 400 million towards um, improving election structures. And so I just want to get a sense from um, either uh, you, Ned or Rick, uh, about what do you feel are the most likely recommendations to be implemented in time for November? 
Um, and, you know, perhaps how we can pro provide a path forward, even for those recommendations that are unlikely to be implemented, right? Long-term solutions that we can look forward to, um, to uh, aspire into and reach in someday. And I'd be curious as to whether Rick has a revised view on the number. I heard Emily Bazelon at the New York Times on a podcast that she has talking about a new article that she's written for the New York Times magazine that um, is along the same lines, I think, of what we're talking about. And, and she had the figure of four billion, which is obviously twice two billion. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. And that was the first time that I think I had heard that number. So. Rick, I don't know, do you have any updated sense of the price tag and therefore the challenges ahead? Well, let me start by saying that, uh, and Ned can back me up because he was literally in the room. My message throughout this whole thing was triage. All of our recommendations are about uh, tw the 2020 elections. And I feel very strongly that um, if we had tried to go more broadly, we wouldn't have been able to achieve consensus because there's disagreements about what the fundamental problems are with our elections and how we might fix them. And so the idea was to come up with actionable items. So every single thing on this list is something that is potentially doable if there are the resources and the political will. In terms of resources, I think here's the, here's the reality. If the pandemic is uh, still raging the way it is right now in the United States, in the fall, comes back in a second wave, even worse, potentially. There's going to be a massive uptick in the request for absentee ballots. And there are going to be severely increased costs of running in-person elections because of the safety and social distancing measures that are gonna be necessary in order to run the election successfully. Those costs are going to be incurred whether Congress comes up with the $2 billion or the $4 billion or not. And the reason that the money matters right now uh, is because to the extent that Congress does not come up with adequate funds and to the extent that states are really strapped for funds, which we know they are because of the pandemic, the uptick in absentee balloting is not going to be adequately funded and we're going to have more problems. We already saw problems in Wisconsin and to a lesser extent in Ohio in their primaries where not all requests for absentee ballots uh, were processed and voters got ballots in time to be able to vote. Put that on a national scale and you could be talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of voters who will be disenfranchised. Uh, and so uh, I think that um, uh, as we get closer to the fall, it's going to become quite apparent that these costs are there. And then there's going to be a question about whether there's going to be a political fight that's going to be successful to get those additional funds. And given how the president and others have tried to politicize this question, which should not be a political question, uh, I'm not confident that we're going to see uh, the full funding coming from the federal government, but the, the costs are going to be there. So uh, I think that uh, getting the money is important. That's one of our recommendations, but improving some of these things can be done without additional funding, for example, improving the rules over absentee, the handling of absentee ballots, uh, training the media, to, uh, explaining the, uh, to the media why they shouldn't be calling elections uh, too early and what they need to educate the public about, um, convening uh, groups of scholars. Um, these things are relatively small costs compared to the cost of running elections. So I think a lot of these things are doable 
And I think there's a lot of interest. I, I've been very pleased to see that the report has gotten a fair amount of press attention and focus uh, on these issues. And I've spoken to people at other organizations uh, that are interested in them. So I think it's, this is not pie in the sky, you know, usually an academic report, you know, should we change the electoral college? Um, that's something we can talk about for the next 50 years, potentially. Uh, uh, you know, that is something that um, is a worthy academic exercise, but it's not practical. This was meant to be as practical as possible. And, you know, we'll see how successful we are. But I'm op optimistic about at least some of them uh, getting uh, put through. And I don't know, Ned, if you have uh, specific thoughts, given that you had run this um, related conference recently at Ohio State. Yeah, no, I appreciate your mentioning that, and Fernita was involved in that, and, and we can talk about that. But I do want to pick up on one very positive thing that you said about media coverage. I saw today this New Yorker article uh, that really features the report and uh, has a title of something like, uh, should we get rid of election night in order to save election day, or something, I'm paraphrasing. But, the, but, but I'd be curious, Rick, if you shared my sense that of all these important 14 recommendations, maybe the, the top of the list was, was changing media understanding and public understanding about the changing nature of election night and the fact that we couldn't have old-fashioned expectations of tuning in on election night and getting an answer because of the different ways that we vote now with increased and particularly increased reliance on, on absentee voting. And so an article from the New Yorker magazine shows salience. The message seems to be getting through uh, and that, that it's still, there's still work to be done, but I'm curious whether compared to when you started thinking about this project, whether you think you've made considerable headway, at least on that component of the, of the effort. I think that uh, that component has probably gotten the most attention, um, but I don't know that I would call it the most important uh, uh, of the recommendations. I, if I had to rank them, uh, it would probably be, uh, probably at the top of the list would be our first recommendation related to absentee ballots and states having adequate procedures in place for them to be counted. Uh, like you, Ned, I uh, have trouble falling asleep at night worrying about Detroit and Philadelphia. Michigan and Pennsylvania are two states that have decided, uh, this was before the virus hit, to move to no excuse absentee balloting. So even before this, we knew they were going to be hit with a flood of absentee ballots. Now it's going to be a tsunami of absentee ballots. And uh, both Detroit and Philadelphia have histories of not perfect counting of votes in the past. And so, yes, the reporting is important about delays. But if the counting is as bad, say, in Detroit as it was in 2016, then no amount of uh, responsible media coverage in the world is going to help with the um, public perception that there's been a failure to be able to adequately count the votes. And that's really scary. And so to me, I'm just hoping that the chief election officers in swing states are looking at large cities that have histories of bad election administration and doing what they can to ensure that the count is going to be free and fair and accurate uh, and that uh, there's going to be transparency about what's going on. It's so important for election officials to tell the media and to tell the public, here's what's happening at all points, right? It's the kind of the opposite of what happened with the Iowa Democratic Caucus where we heard nothing for hours and then we got um, uh, you know, some very cryptic information. It was only the next day that we learned 
that, that their app had failed, that their problems had failed. There needs to be good systems and there needs to be transparency. I think that's the number one message. I don't know that that's getting through as much because it's not as sexy to talk about uh, you know, the rules for processing absentee ballot envelopes uh, as it is to talk about the role of cable news in destroying our democracy, which seems to be something that print media likes to write about a lot. Yeah, fair enough. Well, that's why, you know, and thanks for mentioning our, our, you know, conference that all three of us participated in earlier, you know, about a week ago. Um, but, but we wanted to highlight exactly what you're talking about, about the risk of a meltdown type scenario in Philadelphia or, or Detroit and how that could spin out of control in different, different ways. But um, in an effort to be a little bit more optimistic, again, I wonder whether or not uh, the fact that Pennsylvania is having a primary that I think is in June, maybe a rescheduled primary with heavy uh, increased numbers of absentee voting compared to previous primaries or expectations is enough of a dress rehearsal, so to speak, or a test drive to get ready for November or whether we're going to learn uh, some things from Pennsylvania that at least will help us. I mean, as awful as Wisconsin was, this is Pranita and I talked about this on a previous episode, it's, it's her, as heart-wrenching as it was to see what happened in Wisconsin, it was useful in terms of a wake-up call for, for November. So I wonder if we're going to get another wake-up call out of Pennsylvania. Well, if, if the Pennsylvania primary has a lot of problems, that will be a wake-up call. If the Pennsylvania primary is successful, it might not be, and it might be successful because we don't really have a contested presidential primary. Uh, there's not as much partisan stuff on the line. And uh, I expect turnout is going to be uh, relatively small, um, unless there's Pennsylvania specific stuff on the ballot that I'm not aware of. Um, so it'll be somewhat of a test run, but, uh, uh, I'm still worried. Yeah. But it does raise important questions about partisanship, right? So the fact that we may not, you know, get a sense of whether or not it can prepare us for November as a test run is because as Rick points out, we don't necessarily expect huge turnout. Um, but it does make me wonder about the role of partisanship in all of this. And I think the report does a really good job of highlighting how hyperpartisanship has um, made even sort of reasonable recommendations and reasonable steps seem um, somewhat politically polarizing. Um, and, and so I just want to get a sense from, from either of you of uh, how did the committee think that we could tackle this, pro this problem of hyperpartisanship? And sort of put these recommendations out there as nonpartisan because, um, you know, one byproduct of the era that we're living in is that, you know, even people in the public perceive academics as being partisan to some extent, right? Even though we, we try our best to try to articulate ways in which we can improve our election system, that is not always communicated. Um, when I read the report, what struck me is the fact that these recommendations make a ton of sense regardless of which side of the political spectrum one falls on, this is just a good way to run a system of elections. Nevertheless, we live in a time where it's really difficult for even common sense approaches to gain traction with the public because they are presented as partisan. Um, so just in, in terms of trying to get these rec recommendations implemented, how do we overcome that problem? Well, the members of the committee come from across the ideological spectrum. We've got some strong conservatives and some strong liberals. Uh, I think that there is a responsible wing of the Republican Party. And I would look to, for example, uh, Ned's uh, own state of Ohio, where uh, you've got Republican leadership, but they seem to be doing a pretty good job 
in trying to ensure that people uh, can vote by absentee, can vote safely. Uh, we're speaking to Democrats and Republicans and independents who are responsible and who care about these issues. That's not everyone. And it's really tough when you've got the President of the United States consistently making uh, false statements about the extent of voter fraud, uh, shifting uh, from talking about in-person voter fraud as he did in 2016, involving supposedly involving non-citizens. Uh, he made the ridiculous claim that there were three to five million fraudulent votes cast in 2016, all of them for his opponent, Hillary Clinton, to now shifting to talking about fraud related to vote by mail. And vote by mail is um, a pretty safe system. I, ha I had an op-ed uh, about a month ago in the Washington Post where I talked about what the evidence is of fraud related to absentee ballots. And uh, it's real, it's very rare, and there are steps to take to minimize it. Um, so we can't speak to President Trump and his most ardent supporters, but I do think that there are some responsible members of uh, the Republican Party for, to whom we can speak, just like there are uh, many members of the Democratic Party to whom we can speak. Now, um, to, to many Democrats, the reforms we suggest do not go far enough. Uh, for example, I've been having a battle with uh, Mark Elias, a public battle, uh, over uh, so-called ballot harvesting, the community collection of absentee ballots, which uh, California allows, other states don't, and uh, trying to figure out how to um, best assure that uh, there is um, uh, access to voting by mail without uh, opening up the path for uh, there to be tampering with ballots. And so I think not every uh, partisan is going to be pleased with all that's in the report, but we were trying to find common ground and we were trying to find responsible voices across the political spectrum who would embrace uh, these changes. Uh, we're, that, that's, you know, that's why the report doesn't have more radical suggestions in it because we wouldn't have been able to achieve the consensus uh, to get there. Even though there are, you know, there are, if I was writing this on my own, there are lots of things I would include that are, that are not in the report. And I'm sure that's true of every member of the commission. Yeah, one thing I noticed is that it seemed very measured. Um, at one point in the report, um, because of sort of balancing the need to have security and um, the, the report says that, you know, online voting should not be allowed, right? Uh, and I know that there are pretty, uh, there are quite a few progressives who would love that. Uh, but it's just one of those things where, you know, you see the report trying to balance security concerns and maintain the integrity of the process with sort of common sense ways in which we can ensure that everyone who is eligible to vote can actually vote. And so I thought that the, the report was really well balanced in that sense. Um, but it does uh, seem like you, you do have to balance the tensions in the, in the report, right? So the tensions between some of the recommendations. So on one hand, when a report recommends that um, election officials audit state voter registration data databases, we also know that that is a way that, you know, people are purged from voter lists, right? Um, and so just, you know, I invite you to say a, a couple words about how do we address some of that, right? So if, if on the one hand, sort of recognizing the importance of having um, accurate voter rolls and maintaining the security of the system, but also acknowledging that these are ways in which uh, eligible voters are often disenfranchised. How did the committee think that we could sort of balance those two concerns? Yeah, well, our call for auditing is not a call for voter purges. It's actually a, a technical recommendation about making sure that there's not hacking into the list of voters. So it has nothing to do with purges. Um, 
We did not make any recommendations on voter purges other than just saying that there should be sound election administration across the board. So I don't think there's that particular tension uh, on that specific point. Um, but we do recognize elsewhere that there has to be a balance between access and integrity. And the fact is we have, uh, I don't need to tell either of you, uh, a hyperpolarized, hyper-decentralized election system. And so uh, just recently, um, to, uh, I guess it was yesterday, uh, from when we're uh, recording, the uh, Oklahoma legislature just passed a bill that restored what the Oklahoma Supreme Court had re rejected, which is a notarization requirement in order to be able to vote by absentee. I mean, good luck finding a notary uh, in conditions of a pandemic. Um, so, you know, things have to be balanced. That kind of requirement strikes me as going way too far in one direction. But we, you know, there are places where we had to speak in generalities because that was the only way we could speak in one voice. Um, I see. And, you know, as an individual, I, you know, I have particular views about voter purges. And of course, the uh, National Voter Registration Act prevents certain voter purges close to an election. Uh, so there are some uh -huh. protections. Uh, but um, uh, there's a lot, if we can accomplish just what's in this report, um, it would take us a long way towards a uh, freer and fairer election system and one that I think would give more people confidence yeah. in the outcome. Rick, thank you so much for that clarification. So just to be sure that our listeners got that. Um, so when the report calls for auditing, that is not a situation in which state election officials can actually go in and take voters off the rolls. It's just a technical process where they go in and make sure that the, the voter rolls have not been hacked. That's correct. Okay. Right. We don't say anything about voter purges in this report. Okay, great. Thank you. And if I can pick up on Frenita's earlier uh, point about the risk of partisanship or hyper-partisanship kind of getting in the way of some of the report's recommendations. Um, Rick, you alluded to the fact that there's a lot of litigation going on. Uh, I saw on your blog recently that President Trump himself is trying to ramp up the Republican Party's legal response to the Democratic Party's uh, litigation efforts. And so there seems to be an escalation of the nuclear arms race, unfortunately, in terms of, of, of litigation and counter litigation. And, and I mentioned Pennsylvania earlier. I agree with you that if turnout is low in Pennsylvania and there isn't an equivalent of a state Supreme Court election like in Wisconsin that gives us more of a feel of a real election, there's a risk that Pennsylvania could lull us into some false security. So I share that concern. I also have an eye on Pennsylvania because there's ongoing litigation that's been filed there recently, both in the state Supreme Court and in lower courts by multiple groups trying to revise the rules for absentee voting because of the pandemic and to make it more voter friendly. And yet it sounds like that's going to be vehemently opposed by counter litigation efforts. Uh, and I wonder whether we are going to have an election in November where the rules are going to allow every eligible voter to actually cast a ballot. I certainly hope so, because I think that's a component of what Frenita and I mean by free and fair. But if, um, it, as the laws stand on the books in Pennsylvania, like Wisconsin, if you're an absentee voter, you're obligated to get that ballot to the government on election day. And you may not get your ballot in time, as Wisconsin showed. And so without 
reform, either statutory or through litigation, we may see some disenfranchisement you like you were fearful for, but I don't see at the moment, you know, bipartisan consensus on trying to avoid that disenfranchisement. So given that you identified that as your top, maybe top priority of the report, the first recommendation, where do you think st um, things stand now? This is sort of two months after you convened the group and six months ahead of November. Are you, do you think we're making the kind of month by month progress that you were hopeful for or, or where, how do you think st things stand at the moment? So first, let me say that um, if you're listening to this and you're planning on voting absentee in November, in many states, you can already request your absentee ballot now. And I would strongly suggest doing that. Uh, I, I, I wrote uh, the other day on Twitter, that's like flattening the absentee ballot request curve. The idea is we want to spread out those requests so that state election officials can be less inundated. Uh, it's also good that election litigation over the rules for absentee ballots is happening now rather than October. So, uh, you know, it might not be so early and often, but it is so early rather than so later. Uh, the Supreme Court sent that message, uh, but it's not just, uh, you know, about that, about the litigation uh, success. It's about getting clarity about the rules in advance. So I think it's good that the litigation is happening now if it's going to happen. I think you're right that um, we are seeing partisan wars over what the rules are going to be. And these take two forms. Uh, one is litigation over existing rules and how they apply in a pandemic. The other is litigation over um, the failure to adopt uh, old rules. Uh, I'm sorry, the one is about um, uh, how you adopt existing rules uh, to the pandemic. The other is about new rules that have been promulgated, for example, delaying elections in response to the pandemic. In both of these situations, I, it's early yet, and I, I'm, I'm uh, working on uh, research on this now, but it seems to me that courts across the board have been more willing to, in both circumstances, uh, give a benefit of the doubt to voters uh, in uh, these election cases, Wisconsin being an outlier. Um, but even in states that, uh, or in federal courts, where you have more conservative members who might um, be wary of changing election rules uh, generally uh, in the face of a voting rights lawsuit. There seems to be a recognition that the kind of balancing tests the courts do, the so-called Anderson verdict balancing, looks different under the conditions of a pandemic. And many states seem to be applying something I've called uh, the democracy canon, although they're not necessarily citing to it, which is that if you've got an ambiguous statute, for example, on what counts as an excuse to be able to vote by absentee in a state that requires an excuse, resolve those ambiguities to favor the voter. And I think you put those two things together, uh, I, I don't wanna say I'm optimistic, but I'm at least hopeful that courts are recognizing that reasonable accommodations need to be made. Now, in some of these cases, I think Democrats are reaching too far. Uh, one of the things that um, Democrats have been arguing in, in some of these lawsuits is that the Supreme Court's Wisconsin decision, uh, which I know you've talked about uh, earlier, um, that the Supreme Court's Wisconsin decision has recognized a right to be able to uh, turn a ballot in that's postmarked by election day. I don't think that was a holding of the Supreme Court, although that seems to be the position that some uh, Democrats are taking litigation. I think a postmark rule maybe makes sense. Actually, uh, given the lack of postmarks that we saw in Wisconsin, I'm not sure that a postmark rule does make sense. But I don't think the Supreme Court decided that. So while I think that many of these lawsuits are well um, 
uh, founded uh, in terms of the excessive burdens that fall on voters in a pandemic, I think there's also been some democratic overreach uh, as well. So we'll see how things shake out. But I am uh, glad that it's happening now and we'll maybe get some clarity in the future before the election. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the points, um, Pranita, I hope you'll jump in because at the um, conference that Ohio State organized uh, a few days ago, we were kicking around this risk of disenfranchisement as a result of uh, absentee voting. And I think I heard you say that, that um, we as a community of scholars should you know, put our normative cards on the table, so to speak, about the degree to which we think the court should step in to avoid disenfranchisement. But, but I think we, all, we didn't hear complete unanimity around that. And, and I think it's worth spending a little bit of time, maybe the three of us, you know, talking about what if in November we have a situation where the outcome of the election turns on disenfranchisement. Um, I think you're going to get some people answer that with, with the message, well, too bad, so sad, we have rules. If the disenfranchisement occurs under the rules, so be it, but that gives us a result that we have to live with. I think you're going to have other people who refuse to accept that and say, you can't possibly think of as legitimate an election that, that depends on the disenfranchisement of voters from Detroit or Philadelphia or Milwaukee, and therefore we can't abide by that result and we have to fight it every step of the way. Um, and then I think you're gonna have parts of the public kind of confused on that point and, uh, and the uncertainty, you know, again, depending, if it's a blowout, the election administration prayer is answered, we don't have to worry about any of this. But um, I, I think I'm less confident than I was two months ago, frankly, about where our national conversation is in this, on this most acute issue. So I, I'm curious as to what both of you think on, on this point. Well, I think that um, I, I, I'm probably with you, Ned. I am less sure now than I was a, a couple months ago. But one thing I um, took away from the conference is this idea of, I think a lot of us uh, in the election law community are uncomfortable with the idea of taking the good with the bad. Right. So, you know, if we accept a, that a certain level of federal court intervention in these disputes is inevitable, um, it works both ways. Right. I think those of us who care about broad access to the ballot, who care about people voting, um, we want the courts to intervene in order to uphold the right to vote. But at the same time, I think I know me personally, um, it, it, it's intellectually difficult for me to then criticize court judicial intervention in a Bush versus Gore, right? Because in the, the way that the court wrote the opinion, they also viewed that as a, a form of disenfranchisement in, in how the recount was conducted, right? So I, I think part of it is sort of reconciling that when courts become involved, you take the good with the bad. Um, and I know me personally, I don't like that. <laughs> but I do think in, in terms, if you, if you want to be intellectually honest, you have to accept that. So that's the first thing. The second thing, um, I want to say this before I forget, Rick, you need to hashtag flatten the absentee ballot curve. That <laughs> needs to become a thing. I will try. Yeah, so, no, that, that, that was a very important tweet. I noticed that when it came across my feed. So good for you on that, Rick. Uh, so, you know, on the question of, of um, disenfranchisement, 
you know, I'll lay my cards on the table. I, you know, this is the position I've consistently taken since I wrote that paper, The Democracy Canon, which was over, well, well over a decade ago now, is uh, I think there should be a thumb on the scale favoring voters. Um, and that, this goes back to something Fernie said, that may sound like a partisan position, but it's not one. And I think, you know, one of the things we saw in Wisconsin was that the Republican legislature in Wisconsin uh, that seemed to be trying to make it hard for people to safely vote we're doing so in order to help a state Supreme Court race. Uh, but ironically, many of the voters who didn't vote were their own voters, that they actually shot themselves in the foot by making it harder for people to vote. Voting rights and disenfranchisement uh, can just as easily fall on Republican voters as on Democratic voters in November, thanks to the pandemic. And I think this is a message we have to consistently say. Siding with the voters does not mean siding with one political party or another. And the president is simply wrong when he says that vote by mail is going to favor Democrats. That's not what the evidence shows. And especially in a pandemic where, uh, you know, if you're uh, uh, an older voter, uh, if you're white at least, you're more likely to vote for the Republican Party. These are voters who should not be uh, leaving their house right now, except, uh, you know, under um, urgent conditions. And so enfranchising voters by making it easier for them to vote by mail, that seems to be to be a sensible policy and a nonpartisan one. And I have no problem saying that courts should be intervening to be protecting voters right now. It does raise an interesting question about whether or not this will change how we do elections permanently, right? Because one of the things that I mentioned early on is that the recommendations are very common sense, right? A lot of it is spurred by COVID-19 and, and, you know, preparing for natural disasters and such, but this is a foundational matter, it makes sense for our elections to be conducted in this manner. Um, I know one, one thing I would like to see done permanently, and, and you know, this is separate and apart from the recommendations, is I would love for the democracy canon to apply going forward, regardless if it's COVID-19 or not. You know, that just makes sense to put a, a thumb on the scale in favor of voting, uh, voters. But, but in terms of the recommendations, it also seems to make sense that, you know, election administrators make provisions for you know, uh, people, more people voting by mail, that nonprofit organizations conduct trainings for journalists, that we get rid of this horse race mentality. Like all of these things make sense independent of the pandemic. Um, so, so what do you guys think? Do you think that this will change how we do things? I hope so. Spoiler, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'd be curious as to whether Rick has heard of any movement on one particular recommendation that he mentioned at the outset. Um, and one that I'm, you know, particularly interested in, but don't know where it stands. And I think it's number eight on the list. It's the creation of some bipartisan commission that would kind of guide the conversation, maybe to avoid the partisanship and polarization that, Pranita, you mentioned earlier. Um, as I understand the report, it would hope that that would start to exist maybe over the summer, as we kind of try to hammer out these rules on absentee voting. And, and, and make the point that this is common sense. This isn't trying one side trying to, to get a leg up on the other side. And then if a problem emerged in November, that body would kind of help guide us through that, uh, that difficulty. Um, Rick, do you, do you have any intelligence that you can share at this point on, on whether there's movement on that or is it still too early to tell? I've had some conversations with uh, foundations and groups that are thinking about this kind of thing. Uh, as you know, our committee doesn't, it w was not meant to be a continuing body. You know, we were just uh, out there to make recommendations. So the committee itself will not be serving this function and 
I don't think the committee members are the right people to serve on such a crisis commission in any case. But I do think that there's some discussion of this, and, and I hope that there'll be some movement uh, towards it uh, in the future. And in terms of Fernita's broader question about these recommendations going forward, I have a really short time horizon. I want us to get through November successfully. Uh, and then uh, if we get through our election and our democracy is intact and people feel like the vote was fair, uh, then I'd be very happy to have a conversation, come back on your podcast about what we should do moving forward. Because I think we need some radical changes in thinking about the structure of how we protect the pandemic has just uh, illuminated some of those problems. Fair enough, Rick, although you can't let a crisis go to waste, in my view. <laughs> well, you know, I think Democrats, for example, overshot when in the Wyden bill, the Wyden, now the Wyden Klobuchar bill, they wanted to make no excuse absentee balloting available to all voters, not just for November, but uh, as a permanent feature of federal law. And it seems to me that that's a conversation we can have. I don't want to have it during the pandemic because then that gets into all kinds of partisan political questions. Let's deal with the emergency we face right now. And let's all agree that whether you think vote by mail is a great thing or not, it's the, the, the uh, balancing is much different in the middle of a pandemic. And so I really hope that um, we can get some bipartisan consensus on the short term and not seek any advantage right now. Let's let the crisis go to waste and let's make, uh, make it through the crisis. I understand. I guess my fear is that we always forget things after the crisis pass, right? Like after it's over, we move on and life goes, and perhaps life won't go back to normal this time, but just my sense is that when things blow up um, in election time, we get a bipartisan commission that studies it, they issue a report, and then life kind of continues, right? So, so in, in some ways, this is a, a unique opportunity to um, make permanent things that make a whole lot of sense. So admittedly, I would have been probably one of the Democrats in Congress overshooting. Is it, is it an overshot? Probably. But I think it's also a recognition that we tend to, you know, move past things after the, after the crisis has passed in a way that it uh, ends up being counterproductive. And that's why we find ourselves in the same situation time and time again with respect to our system of elections. Well, I, I, you know, I'm an incrementalist, I guess. I'm just looking forward to touching my face again without thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we wrap up, because we probably should, uh, Rick, do you mind my asking, since you, you're the author of the the book, you know, with the title Election Meltdown, I'm, I want you to tell us where your nervousness thermometer is at the moment. In other words, if it's if from zero to 100, whereas 100, you're off the charts worried about November, where zero, you think things are in good shape. Do you have a sense of how you feel at the moment? So, uh, you know, I, I've been asked this on a one to 10 scale, so I guess I can convert that. Um, I'm at a 90. Pretty worried. I'm pretty worried uh, because, you know, you have this kind of this mix of this incendiary rhetoric and this um, fear of foreign interference and, you know, uh, all the things I discussed in election meltdown, this fights, uh, the efforts to suppress the vote uh, that cause both sides to be concerned that the other side is cheating and uh, pockets of incompetent election administration. You mix into this all the volatility that comes from trying to redo uh, our election rules in light of the pandemic. And I'm, I'm pretty darn worried. Um, so uh, that's why I'm out there spending my time trying to get people to read a academic report uh, that's probably, uh, you know, not going to be um, beach reading uh, as if we could actually go to the beach. But yeah, uh, I'm worried. And um, I'm 
not less worried than I was before the pandemic. I'm more worried uh, because of the pandemic. Well, that's sobering, although I'd like to think that the release of the report over the next couple of months, well, maybe we should take stock of where your thermometer is month by month as we get closer to November, but uh, uh, maybe if the report takes hold as it's starting to, that will lower the temperature, so to speak. Um, although I don't want it to lower our vigilance. I, I share your sense that if we're going to pull this off in November successfully, it's because we keep laser focused on the things that need to be done and it's going to be a challenge given everything that's going on. Um, Fernita, do you want to close us out for today? Yeah, sure. So, I, you know, Rick, thank you so much for coming on the program. I think that the report is a, not only is it useful and, and, and really essential reading for November, I think it's also a blueprint. Um, and I know you've resisted the idea that we should think beyond November, but, you know, I'm excited. I read the report and I'm like, wow, this is something we can really learn from in terms of thinking about permanent changes to our system of elections. But either way, I think that if election administrators actually sit down and, and read the report and think about the rec recommendations now um, with some sense of urgency, then perhaps we can get your temperature down to about 75 by election day. Oh, that, that would be nice. Uh, I'm <laughs> sure my cardiologist would appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you both uh, about this work. And thank you for the work that you're doing to promote a free and fair democracy. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming and great to see you as always, Fernita. Looking forward to next time. We're going to be, I think, talking about the Supreme Court and faithless electors. So that'll be something to look forward to. Yes.